Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and try and learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Anna Sophia Hofmeyer, who is a lecturer at Kansai University. How are you doing today, Anna? I'm doing great, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Today's interview is going to be a slightly different format than usual because we've caught uh, Anna at a very interesting point in her academic career between the submission of her doctoral thesis and the preparation for her viva for the oral defense. That's right. Yes, it's coming yeah. up. How are you feeling? <laughs> okay. You know, it's, it's a bit anticlimactic, I think. Um, I've submitted the thesis and now I'm just in this limbo, you know, it's kind of almost done, but I'm not quite there yet. So we'll see. So what I thought we'd do is run through some general Viva connected questions that actually come from a list of questions that were supplied to me by Dr. Annette Bradford, who's a, a, an interviewee of this yes. uh, uh, podcast. And uh, I will share them with you, uh, the full list with you later to help with your preparation. Thank you. Thank you. The first, the first question that I'd like to ask you is, uh, what was the research question that your project was trying to answer? I wanted to look at how initiatives in domestic campus were fostering uh, interculturally competent students. So really my main question was, uh, does internationalization at home, so these initiatives on domestic campuses, have the potential to generate intercultural competence in domestic students? And if they do, uh, what are the circumstances for its production? Now, which university are you doing your PhD through? I'm doing my PhD through Osaka University. So the people who are going to be judging you on your answers will be quite familiar with intercultural competence in the Japanese context. Yes, I think so, especially because I framed uh, this idea of intercultural competence within the concept of global jinzai or global human resources. And as you know, that's um, quite a popular a term among uh, universities who, that are internationalizing in Japan uh, and that are part of the top global university project, which Osaka University is also a part of. Now, not all of our listeners are from Japan. So right. what would be your definition or what was your working definition of global jinzai, global human resources? Well, you know, to be honest, I didn't start with one uh, because the concept is quite vague, uh, even in the documents that are published by the Ministry of Education and by the top global universities. So actually the first part of my thesis was dedicated to finding out uh, what top global universities and what the Japanese government meant by global human resources and what part of uh, that concept uh, was dedicated to intercultural competence. No, I, I think that's a good way to start with it, particularly when as, as has come out in other interviews, the way that these concepts are defined is either quite vague or is defined by each institution. Right, so, you know, I wanted to look at the concept specifically in higher education, because as you know, the concept is also linked to industry and it's mostly about creating a global workforce. But I really wanted to see how universities were perceiving uh, this idea of global jinzai. So I, I started by looking at promotional and policy documents that were being 
published by these 37 universities and by the government uh, and what skills and attitudes and knowledge uh, they said that they would foster in their students. Um, and then after looking at that, I had a, a bit of, I guess, a clearer picture of what they meant by global Jinzai, uh, by global human resources. Uh, I did frame it, sorry, I did frame it in comparison um, with more of a Western model of intercultural competence, um, just to compare and to see what Japan had um, that was not being mentioned in the case of the United States and the UK. Um, and kind of the specificities of the Japanese case. Yeah, we had a discussion when I was speaking with Aaron Han about the difference between internationalization and globalization, which are often right. used interchangeably in the Japanese mm -hmm. context, but in the wider publications and research in relation to this topic, they're, they're kind of different. So internationalization is this seems to be uh, more of a vertical integration where, where institutions on a sliding scale can be right. more or less internationalized, whereas globalization is more horizontal, horizontal integration. Mm. Um, specifically in terms of your research question, what was the gap in the field that you were trying to fill with your research? Well, you know, there were, there were several gaps um, that I was looking at because I wanted to focus on intercultural competence um, most of the research that has been done on intercultural competence has been in relation to study abroad programs um, and how students who go abroad can become more intercultural competent, the, the challenges they face integrating into the host culture. So I wanted to move away from that and I wanted to look at what we call internationalization at home, uh, which is basically all of the initiatives that are uh, being developed in domestic campuses for domestic students and sometimes international students as well, but stu for students who do not go abroad. Um, so I read a study by um, Agnew and Kahn from 2014, which stated that about only 2% uh, of the total um, world higher education student population uh, was internationally mobile as of 2007. This meant that there were about 98% of students who were not going abroad. Um, to study or to do internships or any other kinds of programs. So, you know, I really wanted to know what happens to these students uh, who stay on campus, who do not, maybe they cannot afford to go abroad, maybe they have other reasons related to job hunting, confidence, security, or safety skills um, that, um, you know, don't allow them to go abroad. So I really wanted to look um, at those students and there's very little research done on domestic students and there is very little research done uh, on the impact of these initiatives um, that do not involve study abroad programs. This is a question that often comes up because uh, there are certain realities to doing research that we we have uh, the, the people who are asking you the questions in the Viva will understand that there yes. are uh, realities that we need to uh, accomplish. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, that we need to that we need to recognize uh, mm. and also looking at your paper I, I see that your major data collection was finished by february 2020 is that correct uh, that's correct yes just that you managed it to get a it a very long time ago <laughs> but that you managed to finish all the data collection before the issues of the recent coronavirus uh, lockdowns and, and restrictions so. i did and i have to say i'm very lucky um my seminar my phd seminar is quite big and i have to say that there are i think about five 
second year students right now who are really struggling to collect uh, their data and who might have to extend uh, their PhD for six months or even one year uh, to be able to finish uh, and to get to the data they need to complete the, uh, the thesis. Well, uh, speaking of that, I mean, my one of my co-presenters, Jonathan Schachter, had to put back his PhD application right. by at least a year because of yes. uh, because of this. And uh, I know uh, I always I always wish him well when he said that he's going to try restarting it in certain ways. But um, I hope that works out soon. But um, how did your current location and research environment, so the places that you're working mm -hmm. and the facilities that were available to you, um, how did it affect your methodology and the research activities you chose to undertake? You know, it affected quite a bit. I feel like, I feel like this is not openly discussed when you read articles, uh, especially when you're trying to publish. Uh, you know, I often get comments, right? Well, please justify. Why did you choose this country? Why did you choose these institutions? It was like, well, obviously, because I had access to them, but it's not something that they want to hear. They want a rationale for why that institution would be the best to research or why that country is important. Um, so right now I'm at, I'm at Kansai University. Kansai University is not a top global university. You know, it's a well-known university. Um, but it's not part of the top global university project. And I really wanted to focus on the top global university project um, because those universities receive so much funding from the government to develop these internationalization initiatives. But that really limited my methodology. Originally, I wanted to do a continuous observation of students uh, over a one year period. And of course, that was not going to be possible uh, because I didn't have access or direct access uh, to these students. So I had to change it uh, to a pre and post test, which I was not very fond of. And it's, uh, you know, generally the literature is moving away from that in terms of intercultural competence research. So I added kind of a mid um, intervention point. So I had three tests, which was the way I found to cope with it. And then I had interviews. Uh, some of them in person, some of them over video conference. But I really had to rely on personal contacts of teachers at top global universities, friends um, who I knew at those universities who believed me and who believed my project and who encouraged their students to take the survey. And really without these contacts, I wouldn't have been able to collect the data I wanted. Originally, I actually wanted to collect data from four universities, and it just wasn't possible. You know, I was not connected uh, to other universities. So I had to settle for two universities. I had to move on from an observation uh, approach to um, a survey at three points in the academic year, followed by interviews. So that really, that's how my location and my position affected uh, my methodology and research activities. Well, you bring up a very important word there, which is contact. And it's something that right. I've noticed, uh, especially in this year when we mm -hmm. are not able to go to conferences. Now, from the outside, it may appear that attending academic conferences are very much about working out which restaurant to go and eat at night and uh, you know, doing some sightseeing. Now, I'm not saying there isn't some of that. No, there but... is. There is. But... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. No, you're right. But, you know, it's the contacts. You meet the people. Um, who you talk to about your research and maybe you help them with their research and they help you with yours. And that's something that's really been missing this year. I miss it too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I always tell the story of the reason why I'm 
working with or have ever done any uh, research with uh, Annette Bradford is because she targeted me at, at JALT and said, I need you to come to Korea with me. And I thought, looks sounds good to me. But after that, we then publishing, presenting in other places like that. And without that kind of personal contact outside of the, the realm of the presentation, mm. just milling around and being able to see people and have conversations uh, really does bring... No, that that's right. And you find, you find common interests, you find common points of research. And sometimes, you know, these, these contacts um, end up giving you access. And, you know, if you've ever done research at a Japanese university, you know that you can't get access through the administration. It's just virtually impossible to conduct any type of research. They will just put up barriers after barriers. If you don't have direct contact, especially if you're looking at students, if you don't have friends, professional contacts that uh, give you access to students, then you just can't do it. No, I would agree with that. And uh, this is one of the reasons why we're doing the project that we're doing, we're doing here is that we hope that people who are listening and people who we interview we find common interest between That's us right. and uh, we have a, a chance to do some contact and work in the future so having done your uh, main research project mm. and completed your uh, the methodology as you had as you were able to do not maybe not <laughs> yes. as you'd planned but as you were mm. able to to yes. undertake um what were what were your main findings let's see uh, there were kind of quite a lot i mean it's it's quite a question to ask a student who just finished writing her thesis to say well please tell me about your findings i could talk about it for a long time i found that things were not as i expected i guess that's the first point there were things there that i expected to be there there were things that i expected that were not there and then there were completely unexpected things so um you know and it's to be honest, I feel like it's the unexpected things that sometimes are the most interesting and that turn out to be the most interesting for me. So, so I found, yes, go ahead. So please tell us what were the, uh, well, okay, uh, probably a better question at this point <laughs> yeah. would be if there were unexpected findings, let's, let's dial it back a little bit and, yeah. and think what did you expect to discover? I was looking at how programs at these domestic campuses could uh, develop intercultural competence. And specifically, I was looking at extracurricular programs because quite a lot of research has been done on EMI, for example, English as the medium of instruction programs. So I wanted to look at other programs that are more co-curricular or extracurricular. And so what I expected to see uh, really was uh, that these programs would directly impact intercultural competence in domestic students, uh, participation in these programs. So I was, I was thinking that students who enrolled in these programs would um, develop intercultural competence directly. And, but what happened was that it was not a direct relation. So students prior experiences or experiences prior to enrolling in university had more influence than what actually happened on campus. So for example, students who spent time abroad prior to enrolling at university, students who are more interculturally motivated as soon as they enrolled, um, and also gender impacted students' confidence 
in their intercultural competence. So I'm not talking about actual um, intercultural competence, but their confidence in their intercultural competence levels. And in turn, this confidence impacted their engagement with the campus. So if they felt more confident in their intercultural skills, they were more likely to enroll in extracurricular programs with an intercultural focus. They were more um, likely to engage with international students outside of these programs, and they were more likely to engage with uh, the multicultural campus in general. And it was this engagement that then developed intercultural competence. So it was not necessarily because they were they chose to participate in those programs, although the programs helped. It's, it was all of these factors that made them enroll in the programs. So students who did not enroll in the programs were the students who were not uh, confident on, about their skills, uh, students who had never spent any time abroad. So there was a new, I guess, a new relation there that I wasn't expected. Okay, well, let, then let's go from the micro from from your study. Yes. And let's kind of expand it out to mm -hmm. the macro of the top global university project. Now, right. for people who are not aware of this, the top global or super global, depending on whether you read the Japanese or mm. uh, English versions of the project is, a ten, right. is a 10 year program, multi multi million pound dollar. You know, right. Yen. I yen. think about, they signed about 7.7 .7 billion yen originally to the program. Yeah. Yes, so it's, it's pretty large. It um, so the, the question from your findings would be, do you think that the universities, the 37 universities, the projects that you've looked at mm -hmm. as an overview, do you think that they're going in the right direction? So I think the programs themselves are working well. I mean, when I did interviews with the students, uh, there were organizational issues, but in general, students, and this was supported by quantitative findings, that formal programs or programs which had uh, faculty-led or uh, administration-led interventions worked a lot better than just throwing students on campus with other international students. So in that regard, universities that are developing facilitated programs are doing well. The problem is that all of this money is being invested at the higher education level. Uh, and even when we speak of internationalization in the literature, you know, it's exclusive or almost exclusive regarding international or tertiary education. Um, it doesn't involve secondary or primary education. But what my results show is that interventions need to be done earlier. So now the question is, you know, should we be maybe reallocating these funds, uh, you know, not assigning them just not just to universities, but also to high schools, junior high schools, uh, to make students increase uh, their confidence and their, I guess, intercultural motivation before they even get to university. So what would be your definition of intercultural motivation? How would that manifest itself? And perhaps how could you encourage that in high school students? Okay, so in my study, um, I had to use a proxy. Uh, and my question to students was, was interacted with international or was meeting and interacting with international students one of the reasons why you chose this university? So I wanted to see whether, you know, meeting international students was an important 
reason uh, or important enough to select the university. But I define intercultural motivation as the willingness and interest to engage uh, in intercultural contact. So students who wanted uh, to meet international students, students who wanted to engage in intercultural contact, uh, that would be what I coin intercultural motivation. And how would you, if you were to be given some budget uh, mm. in these waning years of the top global university project, what would you do with it? Well, if you're, if you're talking about at the higher education level, I really think that, you know, in terms, so actually students' attitudes towards intercultural contact were fairly high. Students showed curiosity, students showed openness, and there's really a lot saying, there's a lot of literature and a lot of, in the news you see it in Japan as well, that there's this inward looking use in Japan, uh, which is not necessarily the case. Students seem to want to interact with international students. I think if I had the budget, rather than motivation, I'd really focus on increasing students' understanding of other cultures, their intercultural knowledge and skills, other than language skills, because I think most of the budget does go to foreign language skills at the moment. Um, but the reason why there was such a gap between intercultural motivation and what students actually did um, was that students had almost no confidence in their knowledge about other cultures and in their skills to be able to communicate with other cultures. So actually, if I had the money, that's, that's where I would invest it, I guess. Now, I don't know if this is within the scope of your research, but mm. it's a question that's come up recently about whether internationalization is sometimes conflated with an increased use of English. Do you think that that is uh, something that needs to be addressed? Do you think that other foreign languages, other foreign countries as destinations for overseas travel should be included in projects like Top Global? I do, I do. And from my personal experience as, um, I guess, a lecturer, and also from uh, my experience with research, um, students' confidence in foreign language skills other than English is even lower uh, than their confidence in English language skills, which is, you know, uh, I guess, obvious for whoever um, teaches foreign language skills in Japan. I think, especially considering the position of Japan in Asia, there are a lot of other languages that students would or should be learning, I think. But I still think there's a certain emphasis on language education that means that the budget is not going to other competencies. And even though students were not very confident in language skills in general. There were other skills that they struggled with. Um, they didn't have any confidence in problem solving skills. They felt like they had uh, very little knowledge of other cultures. Um, so, you know, it needs to move a little bit away from English to other skills and attitudes and knowledge, I think. Now, at, at different times, we never actually worked together, but we've both worked in the past at Ritsumokan Asia That's Pacific right. University and over time I was able to witness the you know intercultural cooperation between the students growing 
And it generally occurred mostly when responsibility for activities such as festivals mm. and circle activities, groups, sports teams, uh, were given more over to the students rather than top down from the university. Do you think this is a, a model that could be replicated at other universities? I think so, and I think that's very important. Um, the results from my survey, as well as from my interviews, showed that students developed the most when they were collaborating with each other. So when there was a partnership between domestic and international students with a common goal. So they were not competing in any way. They needed each other um, to complete the project, right? So they were interdependent. Um, and I think, and also it was just, it's the project that they wanted to complete. It was not necessarily, oh, here's something. Hmm. Uh, this is what you should be doing. There was no micromanaging is, well, we decided to do this. We needed to work together and I learned so much. So I think there's definitely something there for other universities to look at. No, uh, I, I mean, I asked the question, so of course I'm going to agree with me, but the, <laughs> a lot of, when you get a budget and when you get a, a focus and when you have this idea of wanting to increase intercultural confidence, intercultural competence. There's a feeling that it always has to come from the university. It has to be an intervention. Mm. Whereas sometimes like kind of stepping back and allowing the students to develop the connections themselves might be the more positive route forward. I agree and I disagree. Uh, there was definitely occasions in which that happened, but results from my research were overwhelming in favor of formal interventions for students. Um, I don't know how this would work with international students, uh, whether students with a diff different cultural background would react differently uh, to these faculty-led interventions or top-down interventions. But in the case of Japanese students, um, students who did not go through formal interventions, who just had I guess free contact with international students on campus showed the lowest development of intercultural competence over the one year period, uh, apart from students who had no intercultural contact. Uh, so students who didn't meet any international students or who were not interested, of course, um, actually decreased uh, in terms of intercultural competence. They became less open, less curious. Um, students who had informal contact became a little bit more open, a little bit more curious, but nothing compared to students in formal interventions. So I think there's something to say for interventions, and but it depends on how they're done. And I didn't, I think I didn't go deep enough in my PhD. That was not uh, necessarily, you know, something that I was expecting. So I didn't uh, look too much into formal versus informal interventions but it's something, it's an aspect to look at, I think, in the future, um, because depending on the cultural background of the students, formal might be more, more beneficial than informal. I'm sorry to disagree with you. <laughs> no, <that>. it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I just think that when we talk about interventions and when we talk about formal interventions, we need to think there are a lot of different types of formal interventions, which mm -hmm, is something mm -hmm. that should be explored. But students who complained about the lack of support um, were students who they didn't know how to act interculturally. And here's the thing, when we send students abroad, 
we give them pre-orientation seminars. We give them a lot of training, what to do in this situation, what to do in that situation. And what happens in domestic campuses is that students are thrown together and say, oh, you'll be able to work it out. Um, and a lot of the time, they're not given any sort of orientation on how to react or you know, what to do in what situation. So I had one student whom I interviewed who was approached by a male international student that she didn't know. And he was very persistent with his romantic advances. He found her email, her phone number, her Facebook contact. Uh, he, you know, he found out where she lived and so on. And she wasn't sure whether this was a cultural thing or not. And she didn't know who she could turn to for this. And she didn't want to involve the university because she was like, well, what if it's a cultural thing and I'm just being, you know, less open, maybe I should be open to this, even though she felt very uncomfortable. So in that case, maybe having more support um, would have helped her. I mean, eventually she sorted out with the, the situation with the help of some common friends. Uh, but, you know, she felt that she's less willing to interact with male international students now than she was in the beginning of the academic year. Well, these are the unintended consequences of policies that mm. increase the number of international students, as has happened in Japan fairly rapidly over the mm. last 10, 15 right. years, without thinking about these other aspects. So you can think that increasing the number of students on campus is going to increase the amount of intercultural contact, which it does. But, you know, university contact, classroom contact is only maybe four or five hours a day. There's a lot of other time where everyone yes. is being a human being that they don't, uh, you know, that we need to think about those incidences uh, of contact and, and, and try and make sure that both sides are comfortable with the way that the development is is going on. Um, I'm going to ask you a, a fairly yes. common rounding question okay. uh, from a Viva, which is, um, had you been given more time, mm. and you've, you've, you've addressed some of these aspects already, yeah. but had you been given more time to complete your work, is there anything that you would have added or done differently? Well, I think I would have looked a bit more into the formal, uh, the types of formal interventions. Um, you know, it's... <laughs> It's hard to get students to participate uh, in a study for a one-year period. It's even harder if they're not your students uh, and you have to access them through external contacts. If I had been given more time, maybe I would have done even a mini follow-up st study uh, in which I would look specifically at the type of formal interventions to see specifically what's working and what's not working. I got some of that from my interviews, um, but that's really something I would like to explore. I guess I'm um, starting a follow-up project. I just received a grant in aid this year, um, and I'm looking at how intercultural competence can be developed in monocultural classrooms. So I'm moving away a bit from uh, multicultural campuses and looking at the majority uh, of campuses in Japan, which are fairly monocultural, um, and looking at how intercultural competence can be developed there. It was not something that belonged in my PhD, but I think it's a different aspect that's worth researching. 
Also, I, I, I sense that you've been preparing for your Viva already because you stepped all over the, the usual rounding question, which is, what are you doing next? So well, that, exactly. that's, it's good that you answered that one. Okay, so kind of moving away from your research yes. uh, as a product, but thinking about the process of it. Now, I know that during the time of doing your PhD, oh. you've changed you know, the location where you're working, you've had to, you had to move your family, you, you, have, a, you have a young family and you know, you've had uh. to balance you know, those kind right. of commitments and things. So uh, could you give us, perhaps for people who are thinking of going into yes. a, a doctoral program, but also they, they have these feelings of these, you know, external pressures of, of, for mm. time. How did you manage to balance your work, life, research, free time <laughs> uh, throughout this process? Balance is an interesting word. <laughs> uh, but, um, right, so just you know, to give listeners a bit of background, I started my PhD as I started my new job. Um, I started the new job at the same time, which in retrospect was a very risky and challenging thing to do. I had to manage new classes, a new environment, and a whole new research project at the same time. I'm a lecturer, so I teach uh, 10 classes a week, uh, that involves a lot of preparation. I have some other duties as well. In addition to that, I got pregnant during my PhD. And um, I got pregnant. Uh, I already have a, a daughter. Uh, so this was my second child. And so I had to manage um, a pregnancy, eventually two small children with my new job and the PhD. Honestly, for people who are thinking of doing a PhD, <laughs> Uh, you'll need to reconsider my approach, I think. <laughs> um, so I did my PhD in three years. And I think, honestly, despite everything with the coronavirus, if I hadn't had to stay at home for a whole year, I wouldn't have finished it in three years. It would have taken me an extra year. Uh, I saved time that I could use on my PhD on commuting time, on time between Zoom classes, on being able to switch quickly between between classes and PhD work uh, while I was at home. For the rest of the time, it was a big challenge and um, it involved a lot of preparation and time management skills, I would say. You really need to be able to compartmentalize. Uh, I had my teaching days and I had my research days and no teaching work was done on my research days and no research was done on my teaching days. And that really helped getting the work um, done. If you, if you wake up in the morning of a research day and you think, well, I'm just going to have a quick look at my emails, see if any students said anything, if there's any homework, ooh, you'll never get to your research. You start answering emails, um, you get lost in the emails, you remember there's something else you need to do for your classes, suddenly it's lunchtime, uh, for me, mornings are more productive, so then by the afternoon I was just tired, I couldn't do my research. Um, what really worked for me was to separate those and then leave evenings open as much as possible. Now, I have to say that towards the end of my PhD, this was just not possible. And mm -hmm. for quite a few months, I worked every night. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, especially when I was pregnant, I was out by 6 p.m. That was it. I was very tired. Uh, my son is gigantic, so and I'm very <laughs> small. So um, 
but it's hard. It's hard. And it really took, I guess, a very supportive husband um, that, um, you know, looked after the children and especially for the interviews. Uh, I had, so these two universities that I um, analyzed, they were not, you know, physically close to me. I had to travel for the interviews. So um, that involved taking my husband and my daughter and my newborn son, who was at the time about a month and a half to two months to the interviews. And my husband looked after the baby while I did the interviews. And so, you know, you need the support. You need the support from people around you. You need the time management. And then you need to give yourself a break sometimes. I, I put a lot of pressure on myself to finish in these three years. And I think maybe I would have done it a little differently if I had to restart. Yeah, I, I, I think it goes back to the old adage that, you know, life only makes sense in reverse, but we're doomed to live it going forwards. So we, you know, after we've finished things, we've been like, well, gosh, if I could do that again, I'd do it differently. <laughs> but I... That, but having you, got it, you learn. Then... You learn for the next time. You learn for the next research project. Uh, I have been made to promise that I will not work evenings again, <laughs> which I've agreed to because I don't want to either. If I can help it, you know, and I want to be able to spend uh, more time with my children and you know with my husband as well. But it's, yeah, you, it's hard. Well, I had to promise my wife that I would do no more qualifications so i had an idea right. that when i'd finished my phd maybe i'd go back and get an llm or get a celta mm. and she's like nope nope yeah nope. i've had to promise that i would not <laughs> enroll in a second phd in the future <laughs> you know i think i think i have a little bit of an advantage because my husband's also an academic and he we're you know i think um for us he's also doing his phd now and he started one year after I started. So at some point we were both doing our PhDs while having a second child uh, and working full time. But it does have advantages because um, he understands that research time is also work time. He understands that conferences are also work time. Um, you know, they're not just partying and research days that, that does not mean that I have the free day to watch Netflix. It means that I'm uh, in my office doing research. So you know, that, that helps. Like I said, support is very important. No, I, I always value the support that my wife gave me through my, I mean, you've done it in three years. It took me eight and a half years to get through it because I, you know, changed my job four times. By the time I finished my PhD, I was working four jobs and, you know, three of them part-time, one of them full-time and, you know, two small children as, as you, as you have. And it was, yes. you know, just, getting up at 4.30 in the morning and going to bed with the kids and kind of things. And it's, uh, uh, you know, you have someone else who's going through it and can understand the pressures. My wife yeah, is someone looking else, at me. <laughs> someone just, else who can take the kids. That's my, wife, not, yeah. my wife was just looking at me going, why is this taking so long? Like, so, um, but yeah, yeah the, the I, I had the opposite. Great. I had the opposite problem. My husband was like, well, why are you in a rush <laughs> to finish it in three years? I was like, well, I really want to finish before, you know, uh, Adeline, our daughter, uh, gets into elementary school. Um, and I think, you know, that was my main motivation. But. So uh, in closing, what would be, if someone now is thinking about going into doing a PhD, whether it's full-time or distance or some kind of hybrid between the two, what would be 
some pieces of advice about perhaps choosing the location of where they would like to study, mm. choosing the supervisor that they would like, or the field that they would like to study? Do you have any, you know, looking back on your decision mm. process at that time, do you have any advice? Okay, yes. So, oh, I have a lot of advice, but uh, <laughs> I'll focus on the most important points. So for me, um, looking for a, sup a supervisor that fit what I wanted to do was really important. Um, I did my master's degree in Scotland, and at the time I was assigned a supervisor. And I wanted to do something very practical. Uh, and my supervisor at the time was a literature uh, professor. And so she wanted to do something that was not very practical. And so I really struggled uh, with my research because I didn't have a supervisor who could understand what I wanted to do. And I really wanted to avoid that for my PhD. So I say that choosing a supervisor that knows your topic well and choosing a supervisor who is in your field is very important. For me, when I started looking at universities, I had a list of universities that I was willing to choose from. You need to consider, you know, if you need to do coursework or not, if it's uh, just submission by thesis. I ended up choosing Osaka University was only a 10 minute drive from my house, but that was a total coincidence because I found the supervisor there that I wanted. And I contacted a few other um, professors in different universities in Japan. But as you know, in Japan, the university you go to is very important for the kind of job that you can get. So I had a very restricted list of universities I wanted. I wanted one of the top universities to improve, I guess, my future tenure applications. Um, but within those universities, then finding the supervisor that fit me was the most important. And I did that just by reading about the topic. I read a lot of articles. I saw who was publishing in that area. I made a note and then I contacted those people one by one. Uh, until I found someone who was willing to supervise me. And actually my supervisor, when I first contacted her, she said she has so many students, she's not taking anyone, but she will have a look um, at my proposal. So I sent it to her and she was like, okay, she'll take me, but I'll have to be extremely independent and not rely on her too much because she's very busy. But so even though I only saw her occasionally, every meeting I had with her was just kind of, 45 minutes of insights every couple of months. Uh, so it turned out quite well. You need to choose something that, or someone who fits you, I'd say is very important. And you've given us some insights to what you're thinking about doing in the future. So what are you studying right now? And, or, mm. or I'm assuming that you're taking some time off to, uh, you know, think about your, your Viva, but I'm knowing you, I'm, I'm sure that there's, there's a project going on, there are irons in the fire. Uh, what can we expect from you in the future? Well, actually this semester already, I've been um, conducting a pilot study uh, for my uh, granting aid um, proposal. So I'm, well, project I should say, because it's been accepted, but um, I haven't analyzed any of the data. So that's, I guess, what I'll be doing and I'll be tweaking the methodology so that I conduct, can conduct a full study next year, uh, looking at development of intercultural knowledge and um, skills in language classrooms, mon monocultural language classrooms. So that's um, something that I'm very interested in right now. 
there are other aspects or follow-up parts of my research that I think would be interesting, but I'll need to find the time for them. So we'll have to see. For now, I'm still teaching 10 classes a week. Um, so it needs to be a bit more balanced than my PhD time was. And in purely practical questions, knowing you're looking to get a tenure job in Japan, mm. it's important to build a CV to publish, to present. What kind of publication avenues are you pursuing for your the parts of your thesis or, mm. or, or your current research? I have an article that is in the final stage uh, of the publication review process. And that's the one about uh, the concept of global human resources in Japan and what that means in higher education. Yeah, that's almost done. Then I have two more articles that I would like to publish um, with my results, but I'm going to leave that for the end of January or February uh, for submission once classes are finished. I'm just aiming for big international journals. Uh, you know me, I'm, you know, I'm fairly ambitious and I, I tend to aim for the top. Um, just right before I started my PhD, I had conducted this study uh, with almost 400 students that I wanted to publish. And so I found the biggest international journal in my field and I decided this is where I'm going to submit it. And I thought, let's start from the top. And if they reject me, I get some good feedback and I'll go to the next level. But they didn't reject me. They said the quality is not at the level we expect. You know, and looking back at it, I hadn't even started my PhD, so I'm not surprised they said that. But they were interested in my findings and um, they were interested in that gap uh, of the research that I was looking at. So it took me two years, but I finally managed to get my article published there. So really, I'm just looking to publish in international journals. And especially in my field, I'm looking at internationalization at home. It's applicable to other countries um, and to a lot of situations. So it would be good if I could get my research out there for other people to use. And you know, when I was doing my research, I contacted some people in other countries like Korea, United States, who were conducting research in this field. And I said, you know, I was very direct. I said, I'm thinking of doing this. Uh, can you offer me any advice? Uh, how did you do this methodology in your study? Could you explain it to me? And that really helped. So I'm hoping, you know, I can do that for other people in the future. Um, the phrase fairly ambitious is not one <laughs> that I would have given to you. I think the last time that we met at a conference, you arrived uh, in Tokyo, having traveled from Osaka that morning, very pregnant. And yes. <laughs> uh, there's me, there's, there was Aaron and Annette. That's and just right. being like, I just been like, please, please sit down. You're like, no, 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 no. I just need to. I think I think I was eight months pregnant at the time. Yeah, I was excited. Like, we were just like, wow, like, I, I got to get this done. Got to get this done. You know, get up. Where's the coffee? And it's like, so um, the paper that we've been talking about is the thesis of Anna Sophia Hofmeier, which is the effect of internationalization at home initiatives on domestic students' intercultural competence case studies of two top global universities in Japan. I wish you the best of luck with your preparations you. and in your Viva. And thank you for sharing your time with us today and good luck in the future. Thank you very much for having me. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project 
and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.